I believe that disasters reveal society. They are opportunities for us to actually pull back the curtain and see what some of the deeper commitments and values of a society actually are. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine, Politically Reactive, On the Media, Counterspin, Decode DC, Propaganda from Bitch Media and the Bradcast. Well, Scott Pruitt, who Trump appointed to head the EPA, says we should focus on helping victims of the hurricanes in Florida and Texas this week and not debating climate change. I think you have a different view. Of course, the victims need to be helped. There's no debate about that. Mr. Pruitt is trying to sidestep his shameful uh, avoidance of the overwhelming scientific uh, message from the entire world scientific community that hurricanes like uh, Irma and Harvey before it are made much worse by global warming. And this is simple physics. This is not controversial. Uh, Hot air holds more water. And what goes up must come down. So that's why you had, in the case of Harvey, the the greatest amount of rainfall ever dropped in one place in the United States in modern record-keeping era. And likewise, Irma was the strongest hurricane ever uh, measured coming out of the Atlantic. And the real scandal here, I think, is how so many people in the political world and the media world, frankly, are still letting the GOP, the Republicans, get away with this. To even have this conversation about it being, oh, this is insensitive to talk about climate change. Nobody said that, for example, after the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 16 years ago this week. Nobody said, oh, we shouldn't talk about the causes of terrorism in the aftermath of 9-11. That was a lot of what we talked about, and rightfully so. Yeah. So it's the same situation now. But, of course, the Republicans don't want to do this because they've all drunk the Kool-Aid about climate denial. You wrote the book on global warming and climate change. Was there anything that surprised you about Hurricane Harvey in Houston or Hurricane Irma in Florida? No, and this is what's so heartbreaking but also infuriating about these storms. We have been warned literally for decades that this is exactly the kind of extreme weather that global warming would intensify. In fact, going back to uh, 1988, when the NASA scientist James Hansen first testified before the United States Senate and said that uh, man-made global warming had begun, he said that these are the kinds of, of extreme weather events we'll see. And then in 2008, I covered and attended, actually, in Washington, D.C., John Podesta, who would go on to become Obama's uh, transition director and who had been Bill Clinton's White House chief of staff, uh, Podesta organized a so-called war game to try and test how the United States and other world governments could deal with the kinds of climate impacts that scientists were projecting. And here's the eerie part. (laughs) The scenario that that war game used, which was vetted as scientifically accurate by the United States' own scientists at the National Lab, 
here's what they envisioned. The scenario included a Category 4 hurricane in Houston, a Category <laughs> 5 hurricane in Miami, wow. and record monsoon rains and flooding in India and Bangladesh. Well, that's exactly, mm. to the word, what we have seen in the last three weeks. This is, that's why I say this is premeditated murder. We have known that these damages were going to come for years. When you don't act, and instead you make the problem worse, which is what the Republicans have been doing, and I'm sorry to say too many Democrats as well in Washington, it's not that different from continuing, from the big tobacco continuing to sell cigarettes. We know cigarettes cause lung cancer. And for reasons that escape me, it is still technically legal to sell cigarettes in this country. But we all, I think, would agree that it's morally reprehensible. We're in a similar situation now with climate change. The science has shown very clearly that these storms are going to come. They are going to kill people. If you don't do anything about that, that's premeditated murder. Let's talk a little more about the media coverage of the hurricanes, which, of course, has been massive. We've seen those uh, reporters standing outside in gale winds with uh, water up to their knees. We've had those beautiful multicolored animated maps. We've seen the swirling images of the hurricane from far above and the weather satellite. We know an awful lot about these hurricanes now. What, what, did, what did you think of the media coverage? I think the media coverage has been good on the ground. I don't think that they <clears throat> needed to do all the macho stuff about standing out in the storm to prove that they're courageous journalists. But I think that the coverage has been shameful in not talking about the cause of these storms. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that global warming it was the only cause for these hurricanes. Obviously, hurricanes existed long before global warming. But global warming is making these storms much worse. And yet you do not hear that, especially in the TV coverage. Uh, the New York Times, Washington Post have run the occasional article talking about climate change's involvement. NPR also did a piece on that. But if you look at the networks, they did not mention climate change uh, over the weekend, not once on ABC or NBC's coverage. And I think and this includes the Weather Channel. Well, it's interesting. The Weather Channel is very, very uh, cautious about all this. And there was an interesting piece, I think, in the New York Times that uh, talked to the people at the Weather Channel about this. Why, when all of them are meteorologists, they all know perfectly well that global warming is intensifying this stuff. Why aren't they saying that? Well, it turned out, which I hadn't realized, that the demographics of the Weather Channel's audience skew to the right side of the political spectrum. And ah. therefore... They are censoring themselves. And this is the great scandal in the media coverage here uh, of these storms. It shows that the climate denier campaign, which has been going on for decades now, is still working. It's still working, even though the science and we see with our own eyes what's happening. And it's working because even a channel like the Weather uh, Channel is censoring itself because of a political concern. Yeah. It's, it, this is not politics. This is also, by the way, what uh, other climate deniers, a uh, congressman from Houston said the same thing. I am not going to talk about the politics of this while people are in trouble. It's not politics, congressman. It's science. It's the Republicans who have made this political by attacking Al Gore and saying that only leftists want to deal with climate change, which is so ludicrous from an international standard. Look around the world. Virtually every other government in the world 
uh, with the exception of North Korea, signed the Paris Climate Accord to basically get a handle on this problem two years ago. There are a lot of those governments that are far from left wing. Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor of Germany and arguably the, the strongest voice on this stuff uh, out of Europe, she's a conservative government. What is environmental racism and what is environmental justice? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So, you know, it's actually three different terms that have been out there since the beginning. And I actually started the environmental justice movement as a student. And the three terms that were there were environmental equity, environmental justice, and environmental racism. And when folks talk about environmental racism, they're talking about the intentional uh, sort of racial aspect of the impacts that are happening inside of communities, where they're placing certain things, or whether it's a landfill, uh, or it's an incinerator, or a coal-fired power plant, there being that intentionality in that of, you know, trying to impact uh, communities of color uh, and indigenous populations. Environmental justice um, is a term sort of that uh, everything kind of evolved into, because also when folks were talking about environmental equity, at one of the first meetings back in 1992, and there was an elderly African-American lady who was there, and she stood up when folks were talking about the three different definitions. And she said, well, environmental equity is definitely not going to work because what we're asking for is not to be moving pollution around. We are actually looking for justice, and we're looking for the elimination uh, of these impacts for any low-income white community or a wealthy white community or an indigenous community, African-American community, Latino community, so forth and so on. So then there was a big conversation that happened in that space, and folks decided on justice, on environmental justice being the term moving forward, um, and that's where we are today. How do you see environmental racism playing out through uh, Hurricane Harvey currently? You you see a number of different dynamics that are going to happen in this space. The first one, of course, is everybody's always focused on saving lives. And it's great to see so many folks have come together, both those who are in official capacity, those people who are volunteering, you know, to pull together and help save people's lives and help get them to safety. The real interesting dynamic is after this period is over and you begin to see a movement of people. Folks maybe had moved on, just like in Katrina, folks went over to Houston and to Baton Rouge and a number of places. And then they had difficulty getting back home and they had difficulty in finding housing. So one of the things you're going to see is that there'll be a dynamic that goes on here very shortly in trying to get people housed Um, and, you know, getting people who have owned homes, get their homes back up. So the question will be, will there be disproportionate impacts to communities of color and trying to locate uh, places to live? Will there be disproportionate impacts? Uh, when the dollars, the federal dollars start to flow, will there be biases uh, that will also take place when folks are looking for opportunities, the contracting and subcontracting opportunities as the cleanup goes on? Then you're also going to see some other dynamics. You're going to see dynamics in the environmental context of Superfund sites. There are a number of those that were flooded and pollution and sediment begins to move. And we all know that This current administration has been slashing budgets 
in relationship to Superfund work. So now there will be priorities that have to be set and people will be making decisions about which communities will get cleaned up, how fast it will happen at what level. And therein lies the rub, if you will. Uh, will there be those disproportionate impacts in communities of color? And if so, will environmental racism be a part of that overall construct of the way people are analyzing the situation? I'm hoping that folks have learned the lessons from Katrina and Sandy and even the BP oil spill of how we have to be laser focused on our most vulnerable communities and helping to make sure that the right things are in place to make sure that justice is a part of the process so that these impacts that happen even without storms that, you know, we begin to address those. As the vice president the other day was saying, you know, now we're going to all come together, make sure that all of our citizens are protected. I hope that that actually does play out, because if it doesn't, then we will be looking at environmental injustice situations. You mentioned Katrina, and Katrina has been on my mind a lot as well, just thinking about since that was such a huge environmental disaster, and, and also just thinking about so many of the residents of New Orleans who were relocated to Houston after that, the idea they might be experiencing this again is just is very painful to think about. But from what you've seen so far, how has the FEMA response been? As of right now, do you see any improvement? Do you see the patterns repeating? Um, as it relates to the initial recovery, I think that folks have been doing a pretty good job from where I am. I haven't been down on the ground for the first time in 20 years. So from the folks that I've talked to, in the sense of people going out, going to people's homes, trying to make sure that someone's stuck on a roof or those types of things, it seems like that part has been pretty good. Katrina was a little different where we had folks trying to cross bridges and, and people stopping them, those types of things. We haven't seen that type of a situation so far in relationship to what's been going on in Houston and Port Arthur and Beaumont. But the real rub, again, will be as dollars start to flow, uh, as decisions are being made and priorities being set of how much folks are going to actually engage with vulnerable communities, um, how their voice will play out in the process. If there are sort of these gaps that exist, will they be filled? Um, will communities' voice also help in the disaster action plan uh, that will be designed or already is moving forward? And, and, and as it continues to evolve, you know, how their voices will, will play out in that situation. So those are some of the things that folks have to you know, pay attention to. And we're just going to have to make sure that there's real equity a part of this process. Or folks who have been in these vulnerable situations will just be doubly facing these challenges that, that will be in front of them. I believe that disasters reveal society. They are opportunities for us to actually pull back the curtain and see what some of the deeper commitments and values of a society actually are. So news consumers can expect to see themselves or their nation in the mirror of that coverage. 
And that's often, I think, surprising to people because they think of a disaster as an apolitical event. We should rally around our community and not talk about politics. But disasters show us where people live, why they live there, and what kind of dangers they may face because of where they live. That's deeply political. Disasters reveal to us whether or not we've invested enough in our civil society. Do we have the kind of health care that we need? Do we have the kind of environmental protection that we need? And because disasters are so complex, it's all sort of revealed at once. You've observed that conservative outlets tend to focus on the looting, the sense of panic, you say, a sense that we need strong law enforcement. And, and the liberals will say this is a flawed government approach, ignoring the needs of the poor and the disadvantaged. It's predictable. This sort of partisanship is understandable, and it's understandable that the media wants to cover that. But what I like to see is a much closer look at local politics, particularly around things that may not seem so flashy, like infrastructure spending or zoning or the legacies of racial segregation, for example, the politics that actually matter in the midst of and after disaster, not whether or not the president looked presidential when he was standing in the rubble or in front of the firehouse. As Congress begins drafting an emergency Harvey relief bill, what sort of rhetoric should we expect? I think we're into a new period in American history here. Generally, discussions around relief have been opportunities for members of Congress to show convivial attitudes. You know, you have a senator from one part of the country joining hands with a senator from another part of the country and reaching across the aisle and drafting bills they can support one another. That held through Hurricane Katrina. With Hurricane Sandy, we saw something very different. The response from Congress was slow, partisan, and the vote that uh, passed the final Hurricane Sandy relief bill broke along party lines. Critics of the bill were saying there's so many things in here that are pork, that are not related to the disaster. And that reflects, I think, a pretty consistent ideology of many conservatives who don't think the government should be much involved in infrastructure spending or science spending or health spending. A lot of that relief bill was focused on dealing with the deferred maintenance of the transportation system, for example, in New York and New Jersey. Almost all of the bill, whether it was marked for infrastructure or science, had to do with repairing damage, direct damage. Yeah, there's no evidence that the money that was spent was pork in any way. But that reflects an idea that I have, that the government has a role in keeping our infrastructure in good shape, for example. And so what you'll see play out, I think, with the Harvey relief bill is that Democrats will want to see spending that can have a long-term impact on making the next storm less costly. The real thing to watch for will be fights within the Republican Party as to what exactly should disaster relief be. There is one ideological viewpoint that says that disaster relief should be sandbags and water and temporary shelter, and that's about it. Leave the rest of it to the churches, to the communities, to the city, to the local taxpayers, and maybe the state. There will be other Republicans who will take a different attitude, and that's how we will predict, I think, the size of the Hurricane Harvey relief. There's another aspect of this that's playing out at the state level. Houston is a democratic city. The majority of citizens of Houston did not vote for President Trump and for the current governor. 
So you're going to see debates playing out at the federal level, but also at the state level about, well, does Houston really deserve all of this money and will it be well spent? Disasters are sort of a masterclass in American federalism. Understanding it in that way shows us, again, that disasters reveal the way we think about the welfare state, environmental protection, or economic growth. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. If they don't service your area now, they have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. still sometimes hear things like, disasters don't discriminate, or it's wrong to politicize a tragedy. But as we continue to assess the ravages of Hurricane Harvey, it seems like maybe we're moving a bit beyond that. Sure, we know no one ordered up a hurricane, but public policy and political choices do play a role, do make some disasters worse than they might be, and do leave some people more vulnerable than others. So media may be moving beyond nature. What are you going to do? But where will they end up? Because accountability translated through the corporate media machine often winds up just being blame. And blame and accountability are not the same thing. It's not a question of who to be mad at. It's about who has the power to make things different and what should they do. Media themselves are, of course, important players here. So what can we say about their work so far in covering this natural and not-so-natural disaster? We're joined now by journalist Neil DeMoss. He writes often about social policy issues for various outlets, including FAIR.org. And he's author of the book The Brooklyn Wars and co-author of Field of Schemes. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Neil DeMoss. Good to be here, Janine. Well, we don't need to cram Hurricane Harvey into a comparison with Hurricane Katrina. They aren't the same. But in terms of media, one of the things that people remember, besides irresponsible and straight-up racist reporting around Katrina, was mainstream media discovering poverty and the combination of poverty and racism. There was a kind of a light bulb for a minute there, and media outlets promised that they wouldn't forget what they learned. Is it your sense, generally looking at the coverage of Harvey, that media have retained much of that purported lesson? I would say that the media have retained a little bit of the lesson. I think the coverage has gotten somewhat better in some small ways and has not especially improved in some larger ways. I think you have not seen the kind of overtly racist coverage of, you know, people 
looking for supplies and calling it looters when they're people of color that you did after uh, Katrina. And I think you've seen a little bit more sympathy towards the people who are who are trapped in this disaster. But at the same time, you know, what the lesson of Katrina supposedly was, again, for that one minute that the light bulb went off, was the realization that, oh, there are some people who, when faced with a disaster, can't just pick up and leave, not because they are afraid to or are too stubborn to leave their homes, but because they don't have the resources. And that's the kind of thing that you would hope that the media would be exploring more when you have another disaster of this scale. And I don't think we've seen an awful lot of that so far. There still is this idea of a disaster as being an equalizer when what it really does is call attention to real differences that exist such that different people just can't react the same way. And one of the things that I know that you've been thinking about has to do with insurance, even as simple as that. So there's been a fair bit of coverage about the fact that only around one fifth of homeowners in the Houston area have flood insurance. And, you know, I was just watching uh, CNN and they were again talking about what is uh, the government going to do and how are we going to address the fact that there's going to be a huge need for additional aid. Those are good questions to ask. But at the same time, are you also asking why people choose not to or, you know, can't afford to have flood insurance are not getting it. And, you know, there's been some indications that, you know, one reason is that the National Flood Insurance Program has been running short on cash, both because of the series of storms that we've had, thanks to climate change and more devastating storms, thanks to both climate change and the fact that we have more sprawling development that is, you know, getting in the way of these storms. And then also on top of that, there's just underfunding. And, you know, President Trump has been talking about cutting funding for the flood insurance program, which would force them either to scale back on the flood maps that would enable people to determine whether they are actually in need of flood insurance, or if they went and paid for it out of the program's own pocket, then you would have to raise premiums and, and price people out of affording to uh, to have flood insurance. So, again, it's a complicated series of dynamics that you have to look into, and that's it's, the coverage mostly has sort of stopped short of that, yeah. right? You know, it's just been, oh, too bad people don't have flood insurance. What are you going to do? It's not that it's not sympathetic, exactly, but if it doesn't go deep enough, then you sort of have to wonder, well, how sympathetic is it if it's not really going to get at the root of some of these problems? Like, for example, I've heard a few times I've heard that, oh, well, Houston doesn't have zoning, you know, but I, I haven't really seen it spelled out how that might affect impacts from something like this. Right. And there's a couple ways, right? One is that when you don't have zoning, you can have a lot of sprawl into areas that otherwise possibly you shouldn't be building in because they are needed as reservoirs for, for water when you do have a flood. The other piece that there's been a little bit of coverage about is the chemical facility that's having fires is a lot of development of petrochemical facilities in close proximity to low-income communities in the Houston area. And again, there's been a little bit of coverage of that. Democracy Now has talked about it. I think the Houston Chronicle had some coverage of it before the storm. But again, these are things that are very easy for the media to start looking into once you have all this attention on Texas. 
and instead we're largely getting, you know, the helicopter of the hour and, you know, let's see the latest rescue, but not actually talking to the people being rescued about what got you into this circumstance and what is going to prevent this from happening in the future. said there was an initial investment in the mapping in the 1970s, and then there was a real lull between 1980 and the early 2000s, there was an assumption that once we mapped it, we wouldn't really need to map it again. And the funding was very low. So um, FEMA was having a hard time keeping up with the maps. So not only was it unable to map new areas during this time, but it was unable to update the very old maps that quickly sort of became outdated. So the funding did go up in the 2000s. It was recognized that the maps were critical. But like I said, there's such a backlog, right? This is a problem if you neglect policies that um, there was a lot to do. And so they used a lot of that initial funding in the 2000s to simply digitize the maps. So these were actually making digital copies of old paper maps that were based on outdated studies. What they weren't able to use or invest enough in is actual new engineering studies at the local level to remap the flood risk in communities that had, you know, in some cases pretty radically changed in terms of the amount of their development and therefore the flood risk associated with it. So as someone I talked to um, said, they are neglecting the cornfields and cow pastures, the places where on the edge of development that are probably going to see development in the future. And oftentimes those places are completely unmapped. So what this means is that communities can start developing in these areas, not knowing perhaps that they're in a flood zone. Are we taking into account anything um, about like climate change or rising sea levels or uh, hotter than average temperatures or you know, are we looking at any of that kind of stuff? Because I got to be honest with you, you know, a huge portion of the planet is water. It's not going anywhere. It's just going to keep going onto land. Are we doing anything about that or do we even care? I think some people care. Um, we're not doing enough about it, in my <laughs> opinion. And this is one of the things I'm studying is um, adapting to climate change. And these maps are very important for us to be able to do that. I would say that we're not doing that right now. FEMA's aware of this. They've started a new program that tries to have a more dynamic set of maps that do, that can map future flood risks. But these are for informational purposes only, and local communities have to request them from, from FEMA. But it's non-regulatory. So it does not, in other words, it doesn't have any regulatory impact unless the local communities decide to use it to plan development in their floodplains 
and change um, regulations, building regulations in floodplains. So it is up to the local community to, to decide whether they want to use those risk maps or not. Some won't even probably request them. So the, the maps that we've been using and we continue to use for regulatory purposes, that is for the purposes of buying insurance, flood insurance, and also for the purposes of minimum regulations, floodplain regulations, are backward and static. So they are backward looking. They're based on his, you know, historical data. They are static. So they are not looking to the future. So to the extent that, um, any studies can pick up some of those early changes having to do with sea level rise and precipitation patterns, then they the maps will slowly start to reflect that if we update them frequently, right? So that's a that's a sort of a big if. They will capture you know sort of past events, but they will not capture future events unless we start using, you know, putting that into maps for actual regulatory purposes. This strikes me. So basically what you're, you're saying is, if I'm hearing you correctly, if you're taking historical data, you're trying to predict what's going to happen based on history. Yes. If you take future looking data, you're trying to predict what you think is going to happen in the future. I think I just, that sounded very redundant, but, but necessary. <laughs> so we're, we're trying to predict a lot of things here when it comes to the issue of, um, flooding and natural disasters. And for the purposes of this this conversation that you and I are having, we get it right a lot and we get it wrong a lot, I think. You know, if someone says I'm in the 100-year floodplain and I don't flood for the last 300 years, why am I in the 100-year floodplain? Or take a city like Houston, Texas. Uh, you know, Hur- Hurricane Harvey just just demolished um, Houston. Houston has been flooding basically every year since the 1800s, since it was founded. Why? Because Houston's a swamp. And, and so, but we keep doing this thing with Houston. So, and, and here's the deal with Houston. 20% of Houstonians have flood insurance. 80% don't. How is that even possible from a historical perspective? Then looking towards the future, what you're talking about, trying to predict climate change, trying to predict where these storms are going to hit. Um, shrinking beaches in Florida, shrinking communities, etc., shrinking islands off the coast of Maryland and Virginia and elsewhere, um, and in the and in the Caribbean where we own um, some some territories. You know that seems to me that's just as unpredictable as whether or not history is predictable. And how do we know these things? Well, I mean, I think you've raised a number of really important questions. Um, I you know. Now a flood like Harvey, right? People call it, 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 you know, unprecedented. And that's why we're seeing this unprecedented amount of uh, precipitation. I mean, we've seen nothing like it. It's a freak occurrence. It rains in storms here often, but never quite like this. But and those are rare, right? They are rare events. But if we continue to talk about them as though they're just freak occurrences versus harbingers of what might come, then I think we again we fail to really realize the full risk of what we might be facing as a result of climate change. So it gives people a false sense of security. You have a line on a map. And um, if you're in it, you have to buy insurance. If you're outside of it, you don't have to. And that's not the way really nature works. And and FEMA recognizes this too. And that's why they want to move towards different types of maps that aren't so in and out and give a kind of false sense of security and a false sense of understanding of risk. Can we go back to Houston for just a second? 
if a lot of Houston is in the 100 or is outside of the 100 year floodplain map, but Houston flooded in 2017 and 2016 and in 2015, is the definition of a 100 year floodplain that you get uh, flooded a couple of times in a hundred years, once in a couple uh, in a hundred years, three times in a hundred years. If that's the case, it sounds to me like it's not every hundred years. It sounds to me like it's every year. Oh, maybe I'm missing something here. Well, first of all, it's not. It's sort of misunderstood what a hundred year floodplain means or five hundred year floodplain means. It doesn't mean that if you look historically back that you're going to find that this flood occurs on average once every 100 years. It's a it's a designation that means you have a 1% chance in any given year to have a flood at that level or greater. So it's a probability statement. So I do think we have to stop thinking in terms of these 100 and 500 year floods. And in fact, um, FEMA itself recognizes this. There's a technical map advisory committee that has written some really good stuff about we have to move from these 100 and 500 year flood designations to structure specific risks. So that would take a lot more information into account. It wouldn't talk just about you're in or out of the floodplain, but what's the probability of this structure given where it is, given the history of how, how often it's flooded in the past, given its elevation, how it's been built. Um, and that is a, that would be a lot more fine-tuned and fine-grained and a lot more useful for communities to understand that type of a risk. So I don't think we should hold our breath and wait for that type of map to occur because that is going to cost a lot of money. Let's face it. That's a big investment. I think it's worth it, but that's an even bigger investment than just updating the um, maps that we use today, the type of maps that we use today. As always, I would like to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, listeners like Robert G., who just signed up, longtime supporter of the show, and Rob C., both of whom are professional protester-level members, so going above and beyond. Huge thanks to them, but also thanks to all of the members and donors who help keep this show going. Now, we are set up on Patreon, where you can make monthly donations starting as low as a buck a month, so really Pretty much anyone can afford to uh, help support us. Membership levels go just a little bit more than that. They're at $6, but they include all of the extra bonus stuff. A separate member's podcast feed, which includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content that goes out on the days when all the rest of the listeners just get regular reruns. And I've got to say, this move to Patreon, which is a much better way of delivering members' content, couldn't have come at a better time. I think it's better for you, it's better for me, because being dependent on advertising dollars is never a comfortable position to be in, as it's much easier for those dollars to go away than it is for them to come in. And now is actually very specifically one of those times. Now, yes, you heard me promoting a longtime commission partner of mine, Clean Choice energy today. Uh, You know, you may have heard me recently mention that you can support the show by using my affiliate link when you shop on Amazon. But all in all, real paid advertising has all but dried up recently. I'm not sure why. Uh, But honestly, it's 
to be expected to some degree, genuinely progressive programs like this one are known for not being advertiser-friendly, quote-unquote, and that's why your support is that much more important. So whether you can only afford a buck a month or 20 when you sign up, you are helping us through lean times like now when advertisers dry up. So to support our work and to get instant access to all of the member benefits, either find Best of the Left on Patreon or visit the Contributor tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. This story begins with an earthquake. I was alone. The walls were trembling. You can hear the building kind of move. Last summer, writer and activist Bonnie Amor was in Quito, Ecuador, when the city was rocked by an earthquake. Bonnie was there in part to report on the aftermath of another huge earthquake that had struck the country in April, hitting the provinces of Manabí and Esmeraldas especially hard and killing at least 673 people. So when all of Quito started shaking under Bonnie's feet, Bonnie Amor feared for the worst. You know, I remember this April talking to a friend who actually lost family members due to the earthquake in Ecuador, and I was just like, I can't imagine what it's like to just be walking down the street and the earth beneath you just shakes. It's just like kind of like unthinkable. So when it happened, I was just, I, I, I feared for my life. That's the first thing that I think, like, oh, shit, you know, I could die. This is the end. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And then the shaking stopped. Bonnie wasn't sure what to do. Go outside and try to find friends? Stay inside alone? The choices were limited. I deal with a lot of, like, physical disabilities that kind of, like, limit my movement and, like, my access to travel in certain ways. So uh, at that point in August, like, I, I could barely walk. I was having a lot of problems with my mobility. And Quito is, like, a, a city of diagonals. Like, it's just walking up and down mountains. It's super high altitude. Like, uh, I was with my cane, um, so my friend's apartments that would, like, people were inviting me and stuff from my family that was, like, on the other side of the country, it just wasn't accessible. So I made a decision to, um, to stay by myself and sleep by myself, and it was, you know, I was light sleeping. It was really hard. All alone, Bonnie was clearly upset and kept thinking about how it could have been so much worse. You know, I'm shaking. I'm just, like, I'm just trying to be calm, but, you know, my initial reaction was just crying. Because, you know, I, I felt safe in the moment. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I also felt like I had, I don't know, I had a lot of privilege and access that a lot of people who are affected by these um, quote-unquote natural disasters aren't. Natural disasters. That's the phrase people often use to describe disasters like earthquakes, floods, and fires. We usually use it without thinking. But as Bonnie Amore points out, a lot of the devastation wrought in these situations is not natural. It's made by humans. In Bitch's Chaos issue, Bonnie delves into this idea in an article called Unnatural Disasters, the human cost of human-caused disasters. And a lot of these places that are most targeted and most affected by uh, quote-unquote natural disasters were like made environmentally vulnerable to those effects intentionally through environmentally racist policy. While disaster can strike randomly, of course, humans often play a role in what we think of as purely natural disasters. Deforestation contributes to mudslides. The industrial process of fracking has led to a huge jump in earthquakes. Floods increasingly happen in areas along coastlines that have been eroded by human water management projects and oil projects. 
Low-lying areas are even more vulnerable to floods because of rising sea levels caused by climate change. It just decimates the coast um, and all of the natural kind of shore barriers that the Earth has to protect it, protect land from floods and stuff like that. People in coastal regions tend to be historically, you know, black and brown people in, in uh, coastal regions historically were, you know, fisher folk working um, off of the land, subsisting off of small-scale fishery and kind of living, working with the ecosystems that, you know, are, you know, part of their ancestral lands. And those people are, you know, the most marginalized. So we, we see these set of factors that come into play before these disasters hit, like um, commercial overfishing off of the coastlines. There's like these invasive industries, corporate industries, a lot of times illegal industries that come in and just take over the coast and um, of, you know, places in the global south. Uh, and um, that just really decimates the ecosystems on those coasts, making it more vulnerable to floods and things like that. So those people, I mean, you know, that's environmental racism. And in all disasters, the brunt of the devastation is borne by the most vulnerable people, the people who have the fewest resources to escape and who have fewer resources to rebuild. So-called, quote, natural disasters are not neutral acts of God. The very human components of color, class, and gender play huge roles in the chaos. In the relief effort after Ecuador's April earthquake, Bonnie and other organizers saw that many of the people most hurt by the quake, black and trans residents of Ecuador's coastal cities, weren't getting help. Bonnie was among activists who fundraised to send money directly to the people and queer-led organizations that needed support. People who needed stuff the most did not get it, and that's how it happens. That's how it goes. As Bonnie points out in their article, Unnatural Disasters, These kinds of DIY efforts and small group fundraisers played a bigger role in the relief efforts in Ecuador than official government programs. The newspaper El País reported that 83% of the shelters that sprang up after the quake were DIY efforts. Another paper reported that 6,500 Ecuadorians were staying in official shelters, while 22,500 were staying in unofficial ones. In times of disaster, the most vulnerable people relied on each other, and on their communities for support. The world saw similar dynamics play out with Hurricane Katrina. As researchers for the U.S. Geological Survey have determined, the coastal areas of Louisiana and Alabama that were hit by Hurricane Katrina have been made more susceptible to massive flooding thanks to oil and gas companies' rapid destruction of the native wetlands, whose mangroves and plant life are usually buffers between the land and the sea. A giant Army Corps of Engineers canal built to help the shipping industry also destroyed those buffering wetlands. And of course, the Bush administration cut the budget for levee repair, leaving the city's infrastructure vulnerable to, quote, natural disasters. All of this adds up to a clear picture. While the hurricane was made of wind and water, humans played key roles in its destructive impact. What Katrina showed us was that it it can happen in the United States in a place where we have all these resources and all this access and the richest place in the world. And, you know, this is the country that uses up like the majority of the resources, uh, natural resources in the world that leads to climate change. It's undeniable that the race and class inequality in the region created an unequal dynamic in who got out before the hurricane and who got stranded in homes, on rooftops and in hospitals without electricity or clean water. If you had the choice to leave, you fucking left. 
Um, and those people tended to be white and have money and have access to be able to leave and come back and rebuild. The biggest place we've seen this called out in pop culture recently is, of course, Beyonce's song Formation. What happened at the New Orleans? When she dropped that, like those are the first words you hear and those first scenes that you see of Formation is like shit. Formation's video, if you haven't seen it, is full of scenes of a flooded landscape. Beyonce reclines on the top of a New Orleans police car, marooned in a flooded neighborhood where homes have water up to their windowsills. You know, going back to Lemonade, that was really, it was really like truth telling because um, what happened after New Orleans? Looking at the science of climate change, in the future, we're in for more and more disasters. Floods caused by wetland destruction and water management projects, droughts caused by agriculture's drain on aquifers, hurricanes made far worse by warming seas. We can't see these as just random natural acts. We have to think about the role we humans play in this chaos and how we can help each other survive. We need to learn from it, you know, Um, you know, us, the masses who are going to be affected by it now, you know. This new administration is going to be so much worse when it comes to environmental racism and climate change and contributing to that. And it's going to hit us and we need to be kind of prepared. We need to learn from what didn't happen in Katrina. And like you said, we need to look at socialized, community-led efforts to prevent these things, to uh, protect the environment in places where, you know, black and brown people are uh, living and make sure that they are kind of in charge of their own industries. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, protect NEPA and protect our voice on the environment. Now, if you don't know it already, you have a legal right to know about and weigh in on federal government projects before any action is taken. Those rights are protected by the first bedrock piece of environmental legislation, a law called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. NEPA has three main components. One, it promotes transparency by requiring that plans for federal projects be released to the public. Two, it promotes informed decision-making through requiring detailed studies on environmental impacts and alternatives. And three, it gives the public a voice on these projects through public hearings and comment periods. At this point, all of these seem completely commonplace and part of the fundamental bedrock of how we do business in this country. But it hasn't always been that way, and it won't necessarily always be that way. And of course, it's all important, but that last piece is vital. Because of NEPA, citizens have the opportunity to ask questions and voice concerns about plans that will impact the environment and their communities, and then hold their government accountable. 
That period of public review also takes time and shines sunlight on consequences, whether unintended or otherwise, and that's essential to stopping dangerous, rushed, or poorly planned projects. NEPA requirements don't just force the truth to come out. They allow time for movements to be built before projects are underway. They allow time for organizing and for media to be drawn in to alert the broader public and win the public relations wars against giant companies. Think of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Think of Keystone XL. NEPA made it possible for these projects to become household names and public battles instead of just being inevitable. And that is, of course, why NEPA is under attack. A NEPA repeal would be incredibly difficult and very unpopular, so instead, conservatives are trying their old standby tactic of chipping away at it bit by bit. In a Heritage Foundation report last year, the organization wrote about their plans to, quote, pave the way to rescission, unquote, of NEPA by introducing legislation that narrows NEPA reviews, mandates time limits, limits alternatives, and eliminates consideration of you guessed it, greenhouse gases and climate change. In the last two Congresses, over 150 bills were introduced that weakened or waived NEPA. Now, in the current Congress, there are already over 50 introduced bills that would limit or eliminate public input, government accountability, and environmental review of federal projects. Several of these bills have passed or are likely to pass soon. We will all lose if NEPA is damaged or destroyed, but low-income communities, indigenous communities, and communities of color, which face environmental injustice every day, will lose a critical tool in their fight to protect their health, economy, and environment. For 40 years, NEPA has given a voice to people who would otherwise be shut out of the process, but that could change unless you get involved today with the NEPA Works campaign. Go to NEPAWorks.com dot wpengine.com. There you will find details on the history and importance of NEPA, as well as a complete list of categorized legislative threats to this critical law in the House and Senate. Your next step is to call Congress and spread the word about the ulterior motive within these bills. You can also read and share success stories from every single state where NEPA requirements have quite literally saved the day. The things companies have tried to get away with will shock you. Follow the campaign on Twitter at ProtectNEPA and join other environmental action groups in using the hashtags ProtectNEPA and ProtectOurVoice while shining a light on this subversive Republican plan. The NEPA Works campaign is just getting off the ground, so we encourage you to get involved now and keep checking in to see what else you can do to help. If only there was a NEPA to help us defend NEPA. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fighting for your right to protect your health, family, community, and environment is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about protecting NEPA via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
I know you wrote about uh, about some of this a few days ago with uh, Thomas Peterson and Joy Hassall in uh, Scientific American and an headline in an article headlined what we know about the climate change hurricane connection, the field of attribution science and, and help me if I'm describing this uh, incorrectly, but the process of determining what, if any effect climate change has on any particular extreme weather related event, that field has, has grown considerably as I understand it in recent years. How long does it take to sort of conclusively determine the climate change fingerprint on of uh, events like Harvey and Irma at this point? Yeah, so in our piece, we explain there are really two ways to approach that question, and one is just to talk about the fundamental processes, mm-hmm. as we already have. We know that warming increases the amount of moisture and the amount of rainfall. We know that warming increases the potential intensity of these storms. We don't have to do an attribution study uh, to say that. And so just uh, as uh, in the case of a baseball player who's taking steroids and hits more home runs uh, during that season, we know that a bunch of those home runs were due to the steroids. Mm. And as uh, Tom Tolles and I say in in one of the cartoons in the Madhouse Effect, to say, oh, but you can never attribute any one storm to climate change, or you could never attribute any one particular of those home runs to climate change is a loophole that you could lose a planet through. Mm. Um, It is a loophole because, obviously, in a statistical sense, we are seeing more of these extreme events because of climate change. And it's the same sort of attribution um, that uh, led to uh, a major settlement by the tobacco industry um, when there was a clear demonstrated statistical linkage between smoking cigarettes and people dying of lung cancer. And whether or not you could prove that any one person might or might not have died anyway is irrelevant because you know that you've loaded the dice Mm. towards those uh, things happening more often. Now, when people say, and you still hear this response, even by some of my scientist colleagues when they're asked, you know, what role did climate change play in this event? Um, And they'll say, well, you know, you can never attribute any one event uh, to climate change. It's almost like a mantra. It's like uh, they they, they teach it in bad climate communication (laughs) 101. Um, And and it's just wrong now. Um, the the uh, attribution science has, has reached the point where we can do a sort of post-mortem on a storm of this sort, and we can do parallel simulations with climate models, uh, both with and without the added impact of, of humans on the climate, uh, increased greenhouse gas concentrations. And you can see, you know, do, did climate change make this event uh, significantly more likely to happen? Uh, it's just as that approach was used to basically convict the tobacco industry um, for, you know, the death of, mm-hmm. of, of, of millions of people from smoking cigarettes. Um, we can say in a statistical sense that this event is linked to climate change in the sense that it was made several times more likely to happen by climate change. It's the same sort of statistical linkage that is used you know, in, in the mm-hmm. context of, um, again, the linkages, the metal, medical impacts of uh, pollutants um, and um, uh, you know, tobacco products. Yeah, nobody says, uh, can we blame any one particular cigarette? Uh, on, <laughs> right. On... You're, you're... But that, and yet we're, we're trying to hold climate change to that standard, right. uh, or at least some in our media are, are trying to. And, and, you know, and you sort of, uh, it gets to the other part of this, Why? <laughs> 
Uh, well, yeah, and we well we will get to that in a second. Well, this sort of uh, helps us get there. Your your explanations, I want to say, uh, Doctor Mann, have been at Facebook and elsewhere very early after Harvey uh, and then Irma have been very helpful to many of us in the media on this. So I'll I will try not to torture you here since you've written so much about this. Uh, but but I will. So I will give you just one of these uh, quickly. Uh, yeah. Charlie Kirk. A right-winger at some outfit called Turning Point USA tweeted, Florida has had 119 hurricanes since 1850, yet this this last one is due to man-made climate change. Obviously, he was being uh, sarcastic there, uh, you know, poking at people like you. Your response to Charlie when uh, they claim that people like you are saying, hurricanes, this hurricane or that hurricane was caused by climate change. Yeah, so it's a straw man, right? What they're doing is they're putting words in the mouth of scientists because they can't actually um, refute the connections that we are talking about. So we, they pretend that we said something that we didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they pretend that we made a statement that, you know, you know this is sort of the, the, the typical straw man. These scientists are blaming um, Harvey on climate change. They're saying that Harvey wouldn't have happened without climate change. Nobody's saying that. I haven't heard anybody say that. <laughs> and no matter how careful we are in explaining that what we're talking about is how climate change is exacerbating um, the, the impacts of these storms, mm-hmm. no matter how careful we are, and, you know, you referred to several commentaries we've written where we have been very careful, and mm-hmm. we've been very nuanced about how we talk about the connections, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's it, it, what they're trying to do, uh, of course, is sort of um, muddy the waters, poison the well. Um, they, the critics, you know, fossil fuel-funded uh, front groups and the right-wing shock jocks that basically um, uh, work as their facilitators um, understand that these sorts of events really have the potential to hit home with people. When people understand how much damage climate change um, is doing now, um, then, you know, that's that's a real threat to the forces of denial and delay. Um, and so they go after it. And in the very much the same way, right, when uh, you know, uh, I'd like to draw the parallels between Superstorm Sandy and Sandy Hook, mm-hmm. okay? In the case of Sandy Hook, the NRA didn't want us talking about um, gun control in the wake of that terrible disaster where, you know, 20-something school children were killed. Um, uh, you know, the mantra is, this isn't the right time to talk about it. Uh, when Superstorm Sandy wreaked havoc on New York City and the Jersey Coast, again, this isn't the time to talk about it. We heard that echoed in Scott Pruitt's uh, comments and, and, and Perry's comments mm-hmm. as well. This is a mantra. Um, it's what I call sort of the doctrine of Sandy silence, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Superstorm Sandy or Sandy Hook. Uh, the, the, the forces um, uh, of inaction and delay don't want us to be able to t- to, to use a teaching moment uh, like this. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, a drunk driver uh, crashing into a, you know, telephone pole. Um, and then, you know, when, when the cops apprehend him, it's like, this is not the right time to be talking about my drunk driving. <laughs> uh, that, that's this okay. is actually what Seth Meyers said the other day on his show. He said it better than, than I can uh, say it. Uh, it. It was a lot funnier than it 
It's going to be coming from me, but it's, you know, it makes the point, right? This is ridiculous. This is absurd. And in any other, uh, you know, under any other circumstances, um, we would dismiss this sort of, uh, you know, reasoning out of hand. And, and yet, you know, the media, as you note, have largely been cowed into silence by, by that sort of, sort of um, you know, it's, it's the working of the refs. The, uh, the, um, the forces of delay and denial are working the refs, and the refs are, are responding. Um, the, the media is responding by being silent. We've just heard clips today, starting with Start Making Sense, discussing the climate science of hurricanes, politically reactive, explained environmental racism and environmental justice. On the media, discussed how disasters reveal the structures of society and the federal government. Counterspin explained how disasters call attention to inequalities in society. Decode DC discussed how better preparedness and regulation could dramatically improve our ability to weather major hurricanes. Propaganda took a look at a wide variety of ways that humans help cause natural disasters. Our activism for today is in support of the campaign to save NEPA. And finally, we just heard Michael Mann on the broadcast explaining the science that helps us affirmatively attribute some of the destructive power of storms like Harvey and Irma to climate change, as well as the tactics of inaction and delay employed by those who stand to benefit from doing nothing in the face of climate change. Thanks to the volunteer listener. Susan D. for her contribution to today's episode. If you are interested in helping the show like Susan did by being an extra set of ears, scanning the progressive media sphere and submitting clips to the show, join up on the Best of the Left Network to get all the details. We could definitely use your help, and you can find the link to join the network in the notes of today's episode, either on the device you're using or right on our website. And you can also find links to each of the segments you heard in today's show in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. It's Annie from Alabama. My whole family are major, major Trump stands. And in regarding your post about the, um, your episode about authoritarianism and how fascism builds, I read an article one time on why the majority of Germany were okay with Hitler up until he started being really awful and it, because he was good for a lot of them um, financially like he helped the economy first for the middle class standard white German he really was kind of good and they were able to overlook his crimes against humanity because it would per, it would help them first it played on there, well, it's our time to get what we deserve, you know, and that's kind of what I'm seeing in my family is they don't care that, that Trump and his ilk are being awful to other people. They care that he is promising to help them. It's a very selfish ideology. And in talking to my family, my parents especially, I can't get past that because even if they acknowledge what he's doing to other people, they don't care because they're helping him. Um, and I'm just wondering how how I can get past that divide, that selfishness in their attitudes and ideologies. 
that they're willing to overlook horrible crimes against humanity if he'll save them a little on their taxes. Um, any opinions anyone has, welcome, and thanks for what you do. Hi, Jay. This is Keith from New Hampshire. I just had to call in in response to the authoritarianism I'm listening to from Friday. And I first of all want to tell you I haven't called in before, but I have wanted to many times. One of them was to thank you for the well-balanced episode on how Russia was not necessarily behind every corner in implementing Trump uh, and his success in the White House. But now we're kind of back to this, and I know that you kind of, everyone always dips their toe back in that water episode, talking about how RT is Trump's Russian state propaganda, and I'm sorry, I've watched RT, and maybe I missed something, but I've seen people like Lee Camp on there, who are maybe equally anti-Trump and anti-Clinton. So that's not helping Trump's case. I've seen my friend Ron Weber reported on um, being thrown over a table at a Trump rally. So I'm just not sure what the hell they're talking about. And I think we need to be honest with ourselves about how we cover this whole Russia issue. And until we have proof that they did anything, yes, maybe they attempted to hack election machines, but that happens in our country. And we do that to other countries. So let's, let's be real about these things instead of really going full Rachel Maddow with it. Thank you, Jay. Stay on. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. I've got a couple of things to talk to you about today. The first, I want to reply to uh, the voicemail that we just heard, Keith from New Hampshire, talking about RT and the segment on a previous episode that referred to RT as a pro-Trump propaganda uh, network. And so the the first thing I will do is admit that I screwed up in at least a couple of different ways, but I don't think that either of them was including the clip in the show. The biggest way that I screwed up was in, in the naming of that clip. This is like the least I could have done. The name of that clip, as most most people saw it when they downloaded it, it, you know, if they bothered to look at the show notes, it was titled Evan McMullen and nothing else because I made a note of the guy's name who was talking, but then forgot to include any details about who he was or what he was saying, as I would normally do when I title a clip. And of course, Evan McMullen isn't famous enough that everyone should just know who he is. So uh, the the next thing that I could and really should have done was made it more clear who he was, which would actually go to explain why he was in the show at all. And uh, so, so in that episode, at the end, when I do my little wrap up and I kind of tell you what you just listened to, I mentioned that he was a conservative. I may have mentioned that he was a conservative presidential candidate, but I didn't say that during the show or, you know, give you a little preface. And the clip itself, unfortunately, the way it was cut, didn't include an introduction of him. 
And so there was, there was no context. There was no way that anyone listening casually should have been able to know who that was to give you the proper context for what he was saying. So maybe it's clear now just that I've said he was a conservative presidential candidate. He was the guy from Utah. You may have heard of him uh, during the election who was very anti-Trump, but still conservative. And so he ran for president you know, he, he polled well in Utah. He's Mormon. He has a military history, I think a CIA history. And, you know, so he was doing it as a sort of a protest campaign to try to inspire non-Trump-like conservatives to continue to stand on their principles. And so he was on that show, Primary Concerns, a long time ago. I think that clip was from back in uh, December. And so he was speaking very eloquently about the dangers of authoritarianism. And I thought, that's interesting no matter who's saying it. The fact that it's coming from a conservative is especially uh, interesting. He's you know, denouncing the Republican Party stalwarts and the presidential candidates who all very strongly denounced Trump and then later turned around and supported him. And so I thought that that was all really interesting stuff being said, and my failure was not giving enough context for that to come across the way it really should have and and to give you all the details you needed when you heard it. Now, I definitely heard what he said about RT, and I thought, ugh, you know, like, that's not something I would generally put on the show, you know. My friend uh, Tom Hartman is on RT. My friend Lee Camp is on uh, is on RT. I have very complicated feelings about RT as a network. I know that they don't tell Tom and Lee what they are allowed to say, but as I accuse American mainstream corporate media of doing, they don't have to tell anyone what to say. They hire the people who are already saying the things that they want to have said. So if that's true for MSNBC or CNN or Fox, then of course it has to also be true for RT unless there is some very, very convincing evidence to say something to the contrary. So I don't think that they tell Tom and Lee what to say, and they are both very, very anti-Trump. RT also like obviously has some sort of you know, institutional bias the way every organization does. Their connections with Russia make it all complicated and sticky and uh, uncomfortable to talk about. But uh, what Evan said on the show about them being a outright pro-Trump propaganda machine obviously doesn't sit right with me. So in that case, I had the option to either leave it in or precisely take that out as, you know, like a surgeon with a scalpel. And it is very, very rare that I do that. I I suppose I have in the past. I don't have an example off the top of my head. It's usually when a person is making a really, really good point, veers wildly into something really disconnected and then comes back to their point. That's usually when I will edit something out if, if it really feels necessary. But in this case, I thought like, look, he's a conservative dude. He's saying things from a conservative perspective. That's the perspective I want to be on the show because that's what I find interesting. So he's saying this thing about RT that I don't agree with, but lots of things are said on this show that I don't agree with, but they are interesting and part of the conversation and deserve to be included. So that, that's what happened. 
I, I have no ill will to, to the caller who called in and, and pointed it out. And I apologize to everyone for not having done a better job of setting that up because really it was just that you didn't have the context you needed to hear it. It's not that it being on the show or you hearing it was wrong. It's, uh, it's that you need a little bit more information. Secondly, the best of luck social network. It's, it's, it's going well and it's very interesting. I, I can tell it's going to be a very powerful and interesting group of people who have very interesting and unexpected conversations about things. Uh, that That's one part of it. The other part is that it is the organizing point for volunteers who want to help chime in and either submit clips to the show or for editors who want to sort of help me out and take on the job of editing a few clips uh, just to take that off my plate. And so the volunteers are working together. Uh, like I said previously in the show, Susan submitted a clip and that allowed me to not listen to an entire show. It saved me, you know, 20 minutes of listening time. And, you know, she did it. And that was like a super concrete example of how the volunteers are helping save me time so that I can either do other things or like read a book and <laughs> expand my knowledge elsewhere or have a conversation with someone else or something like that. And so that that's a really important thing too. But there's also this social side where all these people have showed up as though to a party. And admittedly, it, it's, it was a bit like showing up to a party and like the music hadn't started yet and the hors d'oeuvres weren't quite ready. And so everyone was like, okay, great. Now, now what? And I get it. You know, that that's my fault. I'm not the best social media person. I'm not the best at engaging uh, people online like that. It's just, it's just not my forte. And also like we're busy. We, we, we don't quite have the capacity to you know, tackle that head on. It, honestly, that's the sort of thing that you could give someone a full-time job of organizing a community like that. So that's sort of where the network is right now, and it will naturally grow and evolve and pick up speed and have its own momentum over time. But right now, like there's, there's like 150 people and there's a little bit of engagement and a little bit more. And then, you know, sometimes I'll ask a question and we'll get some responses. And sometimes other people post something or ask a question and they get a few responses. And so, you know, you can feel it very, like a train pulling out of a station. It's very, slowly picking up momentum as we go. And so what I want to talk about today is the first big, big, big thing that I think is going to show the potential of the network like this. I, I've been very excited about the upcoming, well, no longer upcoming, it's just been uh, begun, the newest Ken Burns epic serial documentary series about the war in Vietnam. And so that just started uh, earlier this week. I've watched the first episode so far. And as soon as I watched it, I thought, yes, exactly. Th you know, th this has been advertised as like a conversation that America desperately needs to have with itself. We Enough time has gone by. Some of the ill will has begun to recede a little bit. You know, it's not a hot topic of conversation where people instantly fight about it on a regular basis anymore, quite as much as it used to be. And, and so let's go back. Let's start at the beginning. Let's honestly, let's start way before the beginning to get some context and then understand 
this war and how it dramatically impacted our country. And so I, I watched the first episode and I thought, yes, this is exactly what our social network was built for. These are the kinds of events that we want to be able to have conversations about. If the war in Vietnam, as produced by Ken Burns, is the conversation starter that America needs right now, then I am happy to be one of those small places where people can come together and have that exact conversation. So as I said, I've only watched the first episode. It's going to be going on a nightly basis on PBS in the U.S., for the next, you know, week and a half or so. And so if you are watching that or you hear me saying this right now and you are inspired to watch it, then also please join up on the Best Bluff social network and there's an entire topic dedicated to this. So if you post or write an article or ask a question, you can categorize it as the Ken Burns documentary. So all of those conversation starters will happen right in that topic. People can follow the topic and respond when you post and, or you can follow along and respond when other people post. Yeah. I mean, it's social media. I, I trust you pretty much get how that works. So that is what is going on right now on the social network. As I say, we are picking up steam and I think this is a, a perfect event to really showcase what a benefit this network will be because it's not just about getting people together to help volunteer for the show. There are so many add-on benefits to having a group of people who are to some degree like-minded, but like it, you know, it's like Facebook, but for people who really like talking about politics instead of people who think they know something about politics, but don't, but shout about it anyway. And then uh, exposing yourself to horrible comments from people who you thought you knew well, who end up showing themselves to be very ignorant. But it, it, it's like that, except better because we're all people who listen to the show and are deeply interested in politics and history and context and nuance and things like that. So I think the conversation is going to be good. I hope you'll join us. As I said before, the link to get into the network is in the show notes. So if you're listening on a device where you can see the show notes, it'll be there. It'll say something like join the Best of Love social network and with a link, or that same thing will be said in the notes on the page on the website for this episode. So I hope to see you there. Can't wait to see how that goes. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again is 202-999-3991, which reminds me, actually, I would love to have that conversation here as well. If you're watching the Ken Burns documentary, don't just join the social network. Call up and leave a message and tell us what you've been thinking about it so far. I've, I've certainly had some revelations and some bl gigantic blind spots in my knowledge of history have been exposed already, and we're only one episode in. So call in on that topic as well. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame.
Past all the sad stories and wonder why.